In the original, uh, a man and a fly basically switch heads, and uh, you have this sort of instant monster created. In this film, when he comes out of the receiving pod, he is perfectly normal, but the fly has disappeared. And what's happened is that there's been a, his body has assimilated the fly, and more than that, it has fused with the fly on a genetic level. And then gradually he begins to realize that he is in fact transforming into something that has never really existed before. It's not a big fly, as he says. He's not turning into a 185-pound fly, but in fact is turning into a creature that never really existed before. Welcome back, ladies and gents. Uh, as you can tell, this is actually a bonus episode. Uh, we are actually starting a new uh, kind of series uh, here on the B-Movie Podcast. We are uh, talking about Blu-rays. So as the title suggests, B is for Blu-ray. So you're here. Obviously, you're interested in what we're talking about today. What we are talking about today is, hear that? That's the solidness of physical motherfucking media. And today we are actually talking about uh, Scream Factory's box set of The Fly called The Fly Collection that houses all five of the 20th Century Fox movies, the three original and then the two remakes from the 80s. Uh, so how this is going to work, it's going to be pretty simple. Uh, we're we're going to actually talk about the films, and then we'll talk about the special features, and then uh, any kind of ephemera we'll talk about uh, also after those special features. So it's going to be pretty straightforward, uh, just kind of uh, just breaking down um, this box set, which... Uh, this and all of the stuff that we're doing, like I'm going to probably do about four or five of these. Um, the reason why, uh, I decided to do a podcast episode about this box set is because it is so fucking massive that it warrants a conversation and a, co uh, not just a conversation about what's in the disc and the, the, uh, and the movies themselves, but, uh, a little bit more something that I feel like should prompt you to actually buy this set. If you're a fan, um, even if you're a slight fan, even if you have these in different iterations, I think that this would be a really good set to buy. Uh, and we'll get to the reasons why. Uh, but right now, why don't we actually, uh, just kind of, uh, take a look at the movies. I'm Vincent Price. What unearthly horror did that girl gaze upon? What manner of incredible thing walked beneath that hood? It would be unfair at this time to show you any more of what went on in that laboratory where a man actually dared to play God. So fantastic words can't begin to describe it. Okay, so how we're going to deal with this is that we're going to break it up into two sections. The originals and then the remakes. So let's go ahead and talk about uh, 1958's The Fly, directed by Kurt Newman, um, with a screenplay by James Clovell. Uh, yes, that James Clovell. Uh, or Clavel, I guess. I, I'm really not 100% sure how to actually say it, but uh, the guy who wrote all of those big massive books back in the day that were just called like Mexico 
in Japan and Hawaii. Well, actually, the Japan one was Shogun. Uh, he wrote The Great Escape to Sir with Love. So, like, the 58 Fly is definitely a classy affair. Um, it, uh, it's, it's really interesting. All three of them are extremely interesting. This one, its sequel, The Return of the Fly, uh, which was filmed a year later, and then The Curse of the Fly, which was, which was six years late after that. So 58, 59, and 65. But um, the great thing about The Fly is that it's a super classy affair. Um, it's not, it's more film noir and mystery than actual science fiction. I mean, there's those few pops of things of like, you know, seeing, uh, you know, uh, seeing the the fly and, <laughs> you know, um, and seeing both the large version and the small version. But primarily what it's about is um, uh, Francois Delambre, uh, played by Vincent Price, is actually coming to his brother's estate, Andre's estate, uh, with his, where his wife has been arrested for the murder of Andre. Uh, Andre's a scientist. Uh, he's kind of like a well near well to do and he's just a kind of an eccentric which is kind of funny because the 1958 version of an eccentric as opposed to the 1986 version of an eccentric is fucking just wild uh, it's a very very different a different interpretation of an eccentric an eccentric inventor scientist um but what ends up happening is an investigation into what happened to Andre? And here's the the funniest thing about this is, is that you already know, but within the framework, it's it's very interesting because it almost plays like a bad robot movie where there's the central mystery and you don't like, you know, you're you're supposed to figure out, well, what happened and how it had happened. And I can only imagine in 1958, it was pretty wild to watch this. Um, I tried to ask my dad who, I mean, of course, I, he's uh, he was about eight when this was out, so he would have seen it. He doesn't remember very much, of course. I mean, eight years old. I mean, he's 69 now, so of course, why would he? But um, he does have a lot of affection for this movie. I have a lot of affection for this movie because he showed it to me at such a young age. Um, and it's it's the perfect like it's the perfect movie for like an eight or nine year old uh, to like like to get them into classic Hollywood because it's not or classic Hollywood sci-fi and horror. Um, it's not anywhere near the 86 with the gore and the violence, but, uh, it's a handsomely made film. It's a lot of fun. And, um, as always, I think that Vincent Price was incapable of ma of having a bad performance in any film that he did. And this one, he carries the workload more than anybody in, uh, in the movie. He carries the weight of it because he has to make the, um, interactions between him and Helen uh real and like he has to sell it more than she does she just has to be hysterical I mean that's kind of that's the 1950s showing for you uh, a woman being hysterical and being shook by people it's 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 definitely not um a modern uh, film in that regard but uh it's it's it is interesting because Helen is the co-lead and 
how the film all plays out and how kind of messy it is at the end with this kind of like throwing the like throwing all the cards in the air and just letting them fall where they may is pretty amazing um like nowadays it would never fucking happen but back then it was just like you know it's it's vincent price and um i think uh i think the characters uh it's inspector charas uh and they just kind of <laughs> they just kind of like oh well you know there's nothing we can do nobody would believe us that a man turned into a fly and a fly turned into a man uh so we're just gonna like you know just let it go cue the ending um but it's it's solidly built and uh like you know people that have a lot of affection for this it's you know it's 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 a good film it's a solid film though it is not as good as the next two uh the return of the fly and curse of the fly i feel like these should be talked about together because um it feels like the budgets were taken away for both of them but Here's the big thing for me about The Return of the Fly and The Curse of the Fly and why I love them so fucking much is that they have a very, very, very specific fetishy thing, uh, technical aspect that I love, which is um, they have their shot black and white cinemascope. Like, it's very rare um that you find there are very few movies that were shot black and white cinemascope i mean uh one of my favorite movies of all time the apartment is a black and white cinemascope movie and there's just something so fucking cinematic about uh watching a movie in 239 and it's black and white in that era um a lot of it is because back in back in the day um they they had consultants and uh, these consultants very much like uh, like nowadays where um, on a $300 million budget set where they have IMAX, they're shooting with IMAX cameras and 3D, um, you have a bunch of uh, tech guys and women that are there to consult on the image uh, and kind of give, uh, give filmmakers the best foot forward when it comes to designing their shots, their color palettes for 3D and IMAX. Well, the same is true uh, back in the day with CinemaScope because it was brand new and it was something that they were using to um, to get people back into theaters. I, it, kind of ironic, right? 60, 70 years later, we're still fucking talking about uh, like, you know, TV and uh, and movies and the constant battle between them and nothing has fucking changed. Uh, <laughs> just the, the terminology has changed. Now it's no longer TV, it's streaming. And, uh, you know, and we're not talking about, uh, we're not talking about CinemaScope anymore. We're talking about 300 to $400 million budgets to keep people in theaters. But, um, both of these films were filmed in black and white, but in CinemaScope. And, uh, each one of them are beautifully composed. I love that about them. They may be a little rickety, uh, <laughs> actually really rickety uh, with regards to the budget. Like there's literally no, there are special effects, but they are on par with, uh, uh, what was the one? I, I was a teenage uh, werewolf, <laughs> the Landon film, the Michael Landon film. I mean, it's literally that bad, but the thing that I love about The Return of the Fly and The Curse of the Fly is that they use the science fiction to tell 
like respectively noir style stories um both of them feel like they're kind of pseudo gaslight uh gaslighting films like they're not a hundred percent gaslighting films but the way that they're designed is like that kind of film or like a film noir where people are doing are taking the technology that was created um, the, the, the concept of teleporting and they're using it for nefarious purposes. Now with Return of the Fly, it, it is a very much so a direct sequel with, um, with Philippe, uh, the son of Helen and Andre who survived, um, grown up and Francois, his uncle, um, who, you know, of course, played by Vincent Price still because it's only a year later, uh, <laughs> with a little bit of aging effects, um, is trying to stop Philippe from from be, uh, from starting his father's work over again. And uh, nothing can convince Philippe anything, uh, anything otherwise than he's going to start it. And it puts Francois in a very troubling situation and he's forced to what he thinks is he's forced to help his his um nephew to finance the the beginning of the research um because i mean francois or philippe is a bit of a little shithead uh not heeding his uncle's advice um and he wants to continue on well there's another storyline a subplot with philippe's um assistant <laughs> um uh and I don't want to ruin it especially if somebody hasn't seen this. I know it's a I know it's a 60-year-old film but um fuck uh it's fucking really kind of a little brilliant how they approach the hook in this film and what causes all of the shit to happen. Um it does take a little bit to get going but once it does it fucking flies. Uh pun absolutely fucking intended now with the curse of the fly you have um you have them flipping it again uh it no longer is the the curse of the curse of the fly um well if it's not it takes place later and there's a setup here and it kind of informs on what happens at the end of The Return of the Fly because these are all direct sequels, which is kind of cool. But what I will say is this much, is that the the story of The Curse of the Fly is really informed by or would really inform 1986's The Fly because there's a love story um, involved in this film. And uh, it's kind of heartbreaking when... Uh, when you watch it play out, uh, it, it is, it's definitely a film that I feel like because, uh, because of the availability of it or the lack thereof is, is definitely something that, that will make this something that I feel like I don't want to ruin for people, uh, because it is so, it, it's so much fun to watch this movie and, uh, see where they take it because again, like the first, like the, the second one, I mean, the budget was near nil next to nothing. And, uh, but they took that not as, uh, not as a detriment to the production, but they took that and turned it around and 
flipped over a really clever script. Both of them are clever, uh, more clever than the original Fly. I mean, the original Fly, like the 58 is ABC. It's handsomely produced and it's got a lot of great turns, but it's not as inventive as the Return of the Fly or the Curse of the Fly. So there's my, there, there are my sum ups of the originals, which is, is that if you've already seen the first one, I mean, you got to definitely see the second and the third if you haven't. So that'll bring us to the two remakes. There is a limit even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown and reformation is inherently purging. Now with the remakes, uh, let's just put it out there. 1986 is The Fly directed by David Cronenberg is a fucking classic. It's... I I don't if if you're not if you've not seen it I don't know how to sell you on something that's a classic other than telling you it's a classic and uh, it's pretty vital cinema especially for somebody who may be a horror fan um, I mean I I can imagine that people haven't seen this movie but all the same um, I know that some people see the label of a classic even if it's something from the 80s and they just kind of pass over it or they think that they've seen it because they've they know the high points or they've seen clips and i'm here to tell you cronenberg is a filmmaker that you can't see the fucking clips and think that you've seen it all like that's just an insult to the genius of david cronenberg if you're if you're going to do that then i don't think that you're really listening to the the right podcast and maybe you should find another podcast to listen to i'm pretty sure that there's a bunch of podcasts that'll talk about marvel cinematic universe in in a few praise uh, for 52 weeks out of the year this is not that podcast at least not 52 out of the 52 weeks of the year uh but what what i'm always struck by as I've seen this film over the years, um, the 33 years it's been in existence, the thing that I've found that's grown on me over the time is the love story and the tragedy of it all. Um, uh, it, it's probably it's no secret that uh, Cronenberg and Howard Shore created an opera of uh, the original Fly and that's about as close as you could possibly get to the heights that which this film takes place is it's an opera but it it's operatic in its not just in its like its message and um its love story but also in the horror that it it uh, that transpires in it um this i mean you've probably heard this a thousand times if you're listening to if you're a a, a diehard um, fly fan but i mean it's a parable for aids i i it's not a parable for cancer it's a parable for aids in 86 the biggest thing and anybody who lived in 86 i mean i was eight in 86 and i fucking knew about aids now of course both of my parents worked at ucla one of them happened to be a researcher um uh, not a researcher but um she worked within uh she worked within like you know the the corridors of uh, of research uh and i mean in 86 that was full on uh and you can just tell you can you can tell how 
like between the triumphant a triumphant that is in this film uh Jeff Goldblum playing Seth Brundle Gina Davis playing Veronica and uh John Getz playing Stath uh, Stathis they all represent like they they represent the different angles of like the AIDS epidemic you have the you you have the person that's sick in Jeff Goldblum as Seth Brundle you have Veronica the the face of support and wanting to find wanting to find a cure or wanting to help and then you have um Getz's status as the paranoia the paranoid uh the one the the people that felt like AIDS was going to encroach on them and kill them by just mere touch so the paranoia uh, of society and it's it's still such a heartbreaking fucking movie you watch it and it's not it, it's what david cronenberg does best which is is that he's able to meld genres in such a way and within his filmmaking make it like elevate the genre and transcend it i know that a lot of people talk about transcending the genre uh, or people that transcend the genre and to me it's just a bunch of fucking bullshit there are very few uh directors that have the power the intelligence and um most of all this the the line of the line of sight the vision um to to transcend genre confines and Cronenberg like over his career uh did it continually uh continually he he took genre material and elevated it to a point where like even now like 30 officially 30 years later uh or 31 years later Dead Ringer stands as one of the biggest misnomers that the fucking academy ever did by not nominating jeremy irons uh genevieve bajul uh david cronenberg because dead ringers is probably one of the best one of the best dramas about sibling uh, about sibling rivalry about um about what it is to be human ever ever filmed like uh, you can never tell me anything different like dead ringers is just a beautiful and amazing movie um i mean even now the the fly i mean you look at the fly and you look at that performance the, those three performances the script the direction the score and you and you stop and you go why the fuck wasn't this nominated for at least five academy awards if not six for its its adapted screenplay but of course it was a different era um it was a different time and then um three years later we get the fly too which even when you watch it and you watch the fly too i would recommend giving it a couple of days before like if you if you get this box if you get this box set and i hope to god that you guys get this box set that you after you watch the fly 1986 you take a break you take a day break or two days and then you watch the fly too because the fly too is it's all right it's it's a very 1980s um sequel like like i would put this as a double feature with predator 2 but <laughs> i would play the fly 2 first and then predator 2 because predator 2 i it's a more heightened movie um 
I will say I was struck because it's been about six or seven. It's been about six or seven years since I seen it. Actually, probably even farther than that. Whenever the original DVD came out is when the last time I saw it. And what I was struck by was <laughs> the silliness of it all. But also there's a couple of sections like specifically. And it, it, this is me as a just being like you guys already know I'm a dog person. I mean, um, my my dog is like, you know, he's one of our family members, but, um, the moment with the dog. And if you've seen this movie, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. That is seriously some hard heart shit. And if, if the film had been able to be as, I don't, I don't want to use the word cruel, but had found that right tone of path of pathos and horror this would be like a surprise one where you're like i'd be saying no no no, guys you gotta understand the fly two is the shit and we'd probably have more fly movies we'd probably have fly three five four you know whatever the fuck it was um whatever they would would ever get to but i think that this mo- this movie is it's it has moments moments truly of like deranged lunacy um and some really great uh like emotional moments but at the end of the day it's it it comes off it comes off goofy sometimes and uh it it goes into the standard tropes of a sequel uh which you know, I just really wish that it it had not done that. That it like like the Return of the Fly and Curse of the Fly, it had it had risen above its status as a sequel. Unfortunately, it didn't. But you can't win them all. And with that, uh, we're gonna go ahead and talk about the transfers and the special features. Uh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No, be afraid. Be very afraid. All right, so we're back and um, transfers. Okay, so a quick word about these transfers. Um, all of them appear to be sourced with the exception of uh, Return of the Fly and Curse of the Fly, but all of them seem to be um, sourced from their first Blu-ray iterations, uh, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, the, like watching it on my, uh, on my 85, uh, Sony, my 85 inch Sony, it was, uh, like all of the, all of the transfers are beautiful. Um, I would definitely point to, um, Return of the Fly and the Fly. Uh, no, actually the Return of the Fly is being probably the best of the bunch. Uh, and I think that has to do with a, they, they have a newer 2K transfer, uh, and it just looks beautiful. Like, the, the more modern the transfer, of course, as you guys all know, the better looking the film is. Um, the 86 um, and the 89 both look acceptable. Um, I would say that the 86, of course, looks better. Um, it looks like there was more care taking, uh, taken with it over the years as opposed to the 89 fly, which is still good. I mean, it still looks beautiful. Um, it just isn't as, it isn't as a sharp of a transfer as the, um, 86, uh, the 65, the curse of the fly, that one, um, 
there's a little wear and tear, but I mean, you know, for a film that's been locked up for, for a pretty good length of time and hasn't been available on Blu-ray or high def, um, I think that it was available on, on DVD at some point. Uh, it's, it looks really, really nice. It's a nice high def upgrade. And then of course the fly, um, uh, the 58 fly looks beautiful. Uh, it's, it's the same transfer that they've, that they've used on the Fox disc. Um, so if you have any complaints about that, I would definitely uh, bring that up with somebody else and not me. Uh, well, let's go ahead and get to the, the special features. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually talk to you about the newer special features, not the old stuff because the old stuff like, so like, uh, the fly, uh, 58 return of the flying curse of the fly. Um, they have new audio commentaries. Uh, they uh, like um, the the fly has all of the the um, special features from the original Blu-ray. So you get the audio commentary with uh, David Hedson and uh, David Del Valle, who's a film critic. And then you get the biography of Vincent Price. You get the fly trap catching a classic. Um, the Fox movie tone news and then the theatrical trailer uh, on Return of the. Um, but then you get a new commentary uh, by um, critics uh, Steve Haberman and Constant Nassar. Now, both of them have been on other um, classic horror films that Scream, ha- Scream Factory has per- um, has released. And here is no different. And their their commentary um, is pretty great. Uh, Constant Nasir is, is quickly becoming and has become one of my favorite commentators on the Scream Factory lineup because he's just so well-versed in all of the subjects that he's talking about, whether it's Hamer films or he's talking about uh, his specialty, which is... Uh, Val Luton um, here is no different like uh, he gives a great commentary about the the historical I mean a lot of it is historical context for the fly and production notes and things of that nature uh, the same goes for uh, Return of the Fly it has actually two commentaries uh, one from um, the actor David Frankman uh, and then another one from uh, historian uh, critic uh, Tom Weaver now uh, the the Hedelman one, uh, Hedelman is, I mean, it, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I know it sounds like I'm being a dickhead, but it's okay. Uh, the one from, uh, the one from Weaver is the one that you want to go for because he kind of gives you the breakdown of the housing wise of why the return of the fly happened and the way it happened. Uh, the same goes for the curse of the fly. Now the one like this one only, uh, the curse of the fly only has one commentary, but it's Haberman and Nasir back, uh, for their, uh, continuation of their original fly commentary. Um, this one again, like Nasir knows his, knows his stuff. I, I, like I said, he's one of my favorite commentators, uh, uh, on the screen factory lineup, like every boutique brand has their lineup of people that they continually use. Like on Arrow, of course, I think that everybody can agree whenever Arrow has a release, if they don't have something from Kim Morgan, you want to go, what the fuck? Why don't you have a Kim Morgan commentary or an interview? Because like Constant Nasir, he's just a guy that like has an encyclopedic knowledge, but dispenses it with a bit of wit and um 
knows that knows how to entertain you. Um, and Nasir does that uh, as well on Curse of the Fly. And just to hear him talk about this production and the hows and whys of why it happened and the actors involved, it's it, it's a pure joy. Um, I mean, I would, <laughs> I would even say that one could, like if you were a fan, uh, you could listen to the commentary first. Um, I may have, may have not. I'll let that up to you. Um, so... Each of the like the the two that are new to Blu-ray, the Return of the Fly and Curse of the Fly, they only the additional features that they have are trailers, TV spots, and a still and still galleries. So these are not like they're just basic stuff. Um, uh, the eighty-six Fly has a bunch of new features. Now it still carries over that great documentary that was from the heyday of of film uh of blu-rays or i'm sorry of dvds uh that three-part i think it's like a two-hour documentary can't remember the runtime on it but it's still there cronenberg's audio commentary anything that you had in the original disc you actually have here um screen factory made sure that everything was ported over but they also have new things which is kind of great and i'm not going to ruin anything but i'm definitely going to list you some stuff and kind of give you an overview of of what to expect from those things so like you get a new audio commentary from critic william beard uh, and then you get five new interviews um the first one is with mel brooks it's a it's a uh, it's a 13 minute interview with him where he he basically goes over um you know his involvement with it um kind of gives you a little breakdown of that it, it's just kind of great to see to see brooks talk about uh the films that he produced uh and he even mentions uh he even mentions elephant man which is a personal favorite of mine and uh it, it, like of course he produced it uh and it's just kind of nice uh it's a nice little interview uh especially for those that like say are new to the fly and didn't realize that mel blazing saddles brooks uh produced this along with the elephant man um the next one is an interview with uh producer Stuart cornfeld uh that one runs about uh that one's a little bit longer that one's about 23 minutes and um he he's kind of like uh cornfield is kind of a great interview with regards to like kind of giving you an understanding of where they came from when they produced this version of the fly uh is specifically even going into like things that he uh like his origins and how much he loved certain things specifically uh the cocteau beauty and the beast which is is the best a version of beauty and the beast don't argue with me on this one guys but he um kind of gives you like an overview of why um they produced this film uh which is very very interesting um the next one is um an interview with the casting director and uh, uh the great thing about her is that she kind of gives you a little bit more information about her history with uh her history with uh david cronenberg and um how she got involved with it uh because she essentially had quit the business by that point it's a really interesting interview i definitely hope that you guys listen to it because i feel like and this is a big thing for me i uh, like if you've ever read my my um my reviews uh i try to make a, a point of 
of talking about casting directors because they are some of the unsung heroes of films and especially things that have amazing casts um, or ensembles. I mean, they are the they are the reason why people like, you know, people are grouped together the way that they are. And if it works, it works. So, yeah, definitely a, a great little interview with her. Uh, the next one is the um, it's a 25 minute interview with Mark Irwin. Now, Irwin, man, I love this guy. Like I loved I, I loved his films when he sh- like I loved his work with Cronenberg. But here's an interview. He's kind of really fascinating. He talks about like he begins with like the scene in Canada in the 1970s, um, (laughs) like there's like discussion of like, you know, porn and producing porn and like having to buy films from the Weinsteins, uh, like Canadian theater owners and how that kind of evolved into Canada making their own films and then tax shelters for, doctors and chiropractors and how that came became involved and uh, like all swirling through this is Cronenberg and Irwin and um Irwin's discussion about the process and about the film is really fascinating uh, definitely worth a listen or I should say a view um and then finally it's it's the briefest of the interviews at nine minutes but it's um an interview with Howard Shore and this one, even though it's nine minutes, I'm going to tell you guys, this may be the best of them because um, Shore talks about his work with Cronenberg. But more specifically, he talks about how the creative process works with Cronenberg, which is the most fascinating thing to me. Uh, I think it should be for any film fan that loves David Cronenberg is how does he get these movies made in the way that he so clearly has a vision to be made and uh shower really does a good job in that that nine minute interview of just kind of breaking that down and uh giving you an insight into that so definitely worth a a view and now we're going to go ahead and move over to the last disc which is the fly two so again with um with the fly two it's it still has the all of the features from the dvd release uh back in the early aughts uh, but it does include some new stuff. Uh, there's approximately six interviews. So the first one is another uh, another one with Stuart Kornfeld. Um, he basically talks about how Fox and specifically the executive that they were working with, <laughs> which is really funny because he name drops Scott Rudin as the executive that they were working with, wanted another Fly movie. So they went ahead and went along with producing another fly, uh, another a sequel to the fly and all of the problems that they came into uh, with doing that. Uh, the next um, the next interview is with uh, every uh, probably everybody's favorite horror podcaster, uh, Mick Garris. Uh, Mick Garris was the one of the writers on the film and. He basically talks about how he was hired in his iteration of The Fly and what he did and 
the work that he did and how he came up onto the project. And uh, it was really interesting listening to him talk about how he owes Spielberg a lot uh, because he was writing uh, amazing stories at the time that he got a bunch of his biggest hits or the biggest known films for him, specifically Hocus Pocus and The Fly 2. But it's interesting to listen to him talk about the screenwriting process. Uh, and that goes along, that leads on to the next interview, which is the uh, is a 22-minute interview with uh, Ken Wheat, um, who, along with his uh, his brother Jim, um, have written a lot of great like uh, sci-fi, um, low-budget sci-fi. I mean, he even talks about that. He talks about like his origins and uh, him and his brother uh, writing scripts and then um, producing and directing a low-budget f- horror feature. That led to them actually getting, of all things, uh, getting uh, a script uh, like uh, the I, I'm sorry, getting a job for uh, the adaptation of App Pupil, which, of course, their version never got used. But that led to the Fly 2 and the rewrite job on that. And it's really interesting to hear him talk like along with Garris, because a lot of screenwriters really don't get their chance to talk about that development process and both of them do uh with with a fair decent amount of honesty and it's it's pretty interesting uh the next <clears throat> uh the next interview is with the cinematographer robin vegan um now <laughs> at first i was like why do i know that fucking name and it's because he's the uh, he's the cinematographer for uh, Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2, uh, two of uh, two of my uh, some of my favorite horror films and very much so like of the of the Mark Irwin ilk, like with his cinematography, very clean, unobstructed um, look. And he is a great interview like the the interview talk like he talks about how he was working on the Hellraiser films and how the fly came to him and. Um, he was hired and then it's a very techie interview. So if you like techie stuff, like, you know, how he chose Fuji film stock over Kodak film stock. And there's a very specific reason. There's some specific reasons why he did that, but it's very interesting. So if you're somebody who loves cinematographers, this is definitely one for you. Um, the next, uh, the next interview, uh, is an 18 minute interview with, uh, Christopher Young, who, of course, composed uh, the score for the Fly Two, and he's also pretty interesting in in the way that he talks about um, he talks about the score itself and how it worked, and uh, some really interesting tidbits like um, how involved Mel Brooks was as he recorded in Prague. Uh, it's a pretty funny and interesting story uh, that I'll let uh, that I won't ruin, and I'll I'll definitely uh, let him. Uh, tell it but it's a it's a decent interview it definitely has some great tidbits about the composing of the of of the score and then finally finally we have um the uh, um interview with special effects artist uh, tom sullivan which is around 18 minutes long and um this one is a little hard especially uh, when you open and it's not hard it's just it it's kind of heartbreaking because you like the opening moments uh he uh, sullivan recounts how he got the job and part of 
Um, part of it was at the time um, he was going through a huge grieving process because his wife um, was uh, was in an accident and caused her to lose her life. Uh, I mean, it gets better from there, but I mean, there's a, this huge hint of sadness to the whole interview, um, which, yeah, I mean, uh, he does, once he gets going, he definitely talks about like the technical aspects and the challenges and what he did, um, with the film, which if anybody's seen the film, they know that third act is pretty fucking wild with all the effects work. And he definitely talks about that because he, actually helped a lot with that in the designing of the of the uh fly the the next brundle fly so yeah no i mean it, it's it's a great set uh like all of these special features i mean it's literally hours and hours of special features and i would recommend anybody that that loves physical media and is collecting in the way that i have i collect uh I think you guys see on the social media page for the B-Movie podcast, the voracious appetite at which we purchase Blu-rays or we receive Blu-rays. And um, this one I'm going to put at a highest possible recommendation. And the, the reason is twofold. One, the fucking set kicks ass. I mean, I... I hadn't, I hadn't seen the, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen the third fly. I'd only seen the first two from the fifties. I hadn't seen that 65 curse. I mean, that alone is worth the price of admission. Um, but it's the time and care that Screen Factory took with this set to make it, I mean, the art on it is beautiful. It's, you've seen it on the, you probably have seen it on the, um, uh, I was going to say on the Amazon, I don't like using that the, uh, but on Amazon or screen factories, uh, social media pages, or even their, their website, uh, it, it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful box set. And each one of these, uh, each one of the discs are done in that whole screen factory kind of way, um, that has the original artwork at the, in the front. Um, and it's solid. You hear it, turn it into a fucking drum set. But the other reason why I'm going to tell you to purchase this is because it's these are Fox movies. And this deal was announced before the merger of Disney and Fox. Um, my fear is, and I think that a lot of people have this fear, and we're already seeing the ramifications of it, is that um, Fo um, is that Disney is starting to put all of Fox's movies into the quote-unquote vault. So a lot, like a lot of us that care about physical media and want things, uh, like want to collect things, are pretty concerned. Um, uh, Matt Zoller, uh, Zoller cites uh, the great critic um, actually wrote a whole full article on the status of um, repertoire theaters who Fox was always very, very kind to and willing to give um, all of their assets out for repertory screenings and how that is all but fucking stopped under Disney's management because this is what Disney does. They lock away their shit. And so now they have a bunch of assets and uh, specifically Fox. Uh, and then under the Fox umbrella, you also have MGM. Like, let us not forget. And again, this deal was done before the Disney merger. So now who knows how long, however long 
Screen Factory has this box set is the amount of time that you will have to purchase it. And that's why I'm saying purchase it because I have a feeling that because this is a Fox set that we're not going to get this again. This is the one shot that we're going to have. So if you're a fan or even if you you like one or two of the movies, just buy it. Just buy it because you're going to kick yourself in the fucking ass when in, say, 18 months when that license is up or 18 months to two years when that license is up and they go OPP on this shit. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. OOP out of print, not OPP. It's not the fucking naughty by nature song. <laughs> but when it goes out of print, you're going to be sad and you're going to be kicking yourself in the fucking ass that you didn't pick this thing up. So I'm telling you right now that there is a concern out there for Fox movies and Fox uh, Fox's like, you know, archival materials that Disney is just going to and they already are. I like I said, I I'll put I'll probably put uh, uh, Matt Solar's Ice uh, article in the show notes so that you can easily get to it so that you can actually see what I'm talking about. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a double prong. It just means that you like it's a high, high recommendation. It's not just a highest possible recommendation. It's it's above that. It's the better place. You know, there's the good place and then there's the better place. So uh, with that, guys, you can always reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram. The B-Movie Pod's handle is the letter B, the word movie, and the word pod. Altogether, no lines, no dashes, no bullshit. Uh, you can reach out to me on my Twitter and Instagram handles. Uh, my Twitter handle um, is at Tyrufus underscore McCoy. Uh, why is it that? I don't have the fucking, I don't have the time to tell you guys right now. But eventually maybe I will tell that story. Uh, I keep on prompting to say that I am like over the years on the B-Movie podcast. But it is to say, guys, that um, you can reach out to us on social media. Um, this box set is the first of a couple that we're going to be talking about. The next one I'm really excited about, uh, and it directly ties to this box set. But this other box set that I'm going to be talking about, complete all of them are dramas. All of them are dramas starring a very specific historical legend of an actor. Um, but intrinsically ties to to this box set and you're i guess you're just gonna have to wait to find out about that so until next time talk to you soon